This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Our scripture reading this evening is from 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. One of the main reasons I read this chapter in connection with Lord's Day 12 that we consider tonight is that 1 Peter 4 is the second one of two places in the Bible which uses the word Christian. And Peter explains what it means to live as a Christian in this world of suffering as well as great temptation. Just keep that in mind as we read through 1 Peter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to them to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, 
or as a busybody in other men's matters, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. We read that far in God's holy and inspired Word. On the basis of Scripture, we now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 12. The Heidelberg Catechism here instructs us regarding the name of Christ. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ. That second name we confess in the Apostles' Creed, the Catechism now takes up, explains regarding our faith in this Christ. Why is He called Christ? That is, anointed. Because He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of His body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. Why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of His anointing. And then now notice the Catechism follows the that outline of prophet, then priest, then king, as it did before, only not as explicitly, so that I may confess His name, that's the prophetic work, and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him, that's the priestly work, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. And there you find the kingly work. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's purpose in saving us is to make us Christian. It's to make us like Him. There are many in this world who claim the name of Christ, but do not behave as Christ, as Christians. There are many even in Reformed churches, possibly Protestant Reformed churches, who claim to be Reformed and sound in doctrine and Christians, but do not live and behave as Christians. Some here today, God knows, though I don't, claim Christ 
as their Savior. For this past weekend, even before the Lord's Supper, knowing it was coming, they did not live as a Christian. And they do not intend, after the Lord's Supper, to live as such either. Turn with me to the Belgic Confession, Article 29. Today we consider Lord's Day 12, which includes a whole question and answer, the second part, on being a Christian. Another creed that talks about being a Christian is the Belgic Confession, Article 29. And you'll notice with me in Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, the title, The Marks of the True Church. It's one of those articles that we know well, having gone through recent controversy, where we were declared a false church. But here in Article 29, the marks of a true church, wherein she differs from the false church, includes an often forgotten part. And that part that I read for you this evening is the part on the Christian, the second paragraph of Article 29. With respect to those who are members of the church, referring to membership in an institute, a true church institute, they, those members, may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith. Notice that's first. And when they have received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin. They follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities. But they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in Him. That's an important part of Article 29 on the marks of a true and false church. And now a question about that article before we move forward. Why does the Belgic Confession, in describing the marks of a true church and a false church, now speak of the marks of a Christian? Why include that in such an article? And here's one answer, though not the only one, but a very important one. One explanation for why the Belgic Confession includes the marks of a Christian in this article is this, that it is possible to be a member of a true church institute and not be a Christian. The responsibility of you is to be a member of a true church, to find a church with those marks and to live as a Christian. Both. To have true doctrine in a true church and live as a Christian in such a church. For you know that a church that has all the right doctrines and practices as an institute, but is full of members who are not living as Christians, that such a church is one of dead orthodoxy. And that may not be, but that brings blasphemy to the name of Christ, which we claim to glorify. Beloved, I'm aiming at this. I'm aiming at being a Christian 
Lord's Day 12 is not about being a Christian only. It is first. It is first about Christ, who Christ is, His saving work, what He has done. Remember, what Christ has done has this purpose, that we might live like Him as Christians that glorify this Christ instead of bringing blasphemy to His name. Christ will have marks of Christian in His people. He will. By the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter wrote this epistle of 1 Peter to the suffering church. That church is probably the church in Rome, which he calls the church in Babylon, because they were suffering things much like the saints in Babylon suffered in Daniel's day. They were suffering persecution. And so in verse 12 he says, it's not the only place he says this in the chapter, almost clearly says this in verse 12, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. His point is, if Christ suffered, then you who are Christians in Christ will also suffer. Don't think it's strange. You will be partakers, verse 13, of Christ's sufferings. Not to atone for your sin, thankfully, but to suffer as He did. In the midst of suffering, this church that Peter wrote to were also tempted. They didn't only go through trials of persecution, but temptation to live like the world. Verse 15, let none of you, Peter warns, suffer as a murderer, a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. They were tempted to live like the world and then face the consequences and suffer for their sins. No, Peter says, don't suffer for evil doing. Suffer for Christ's sake, as a Christian, as a Christian. Consider with me our catechism's instruction in the name Christ under the theme, the Anointed One. First we consider the Christ and then the Christian. Why is our Savior called Christ? Do you know, children? What's that name mean? We saw last week, we'll quickly review, the name Jesus. And now you know, you should remember, the name Jesus means Jehovah Salvation. That He is Jehovah God Himself. That He has come to save His people from their sins, your sin and my sin. And He has come to save His elect people and them alone effectually redeeming them and not everyone in this world. Jehovah Savior. That's His name. That's His personal name. The name that God gave Him. And the name then that Mary and Joseph and His friends called Him. And now we come to the name Christ. His title. They didn't call Him Reverend. They didn't call him Mr. They called him Christ. Jesus. That was his title. The Old Testament equivalent for Christ is Messiah. Messiah and Christ are the same. They have the same meaning. 
It means the anointed one. Just as the catechism's question includes, why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? And before we get into the answer of the catechism about why he's called Christ, that is, anointed, we get before our minds that symbolic ceremony of anointing. It's first of all a symbolic ceremony, and perhaps most familiar to us is David's anointing is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You remember the story, children? Samuel, or God sent Samuel to that little town of Bethlehem where Jesse and his family lived. God had Samuel go to that town to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king after Saul. So Samuel attended one of the feasts at Jesse's house. And Jesse had his sons, beginning with the oldest, Eliab, and then to the youngest, to pass before Samuel. And Samuel looked at these sons. He looked at their outward physical strength, their stature, their beauty even, and thought to anoint, remember, the older sons of Jesse. But God told him this, important words, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, on the heart. And after the seven sons of Jesse had passed before Samuel, God said to Samuel, The Lord hath not chosen these. I've not chosen any one of these to be the next king. And so Samuel asked Jesse, Is there yet any one of your sons not here? And there was one that remained the youngest, and he was keeping the sheep. And so they, they brought David from the fields, and he came before the Lord, and he came before Samuel. And God told Samuel immediately, Arise, anoint him, for this is he, that is, this is the chosen one, the one I have chosen. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, we read. And with that ceremonial ceremonial anointing, we read this too, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. David was anointed as the king. Not only were kings anointed, there were also prophets of the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we find God coming to Elijah who is sulking under a juniper tree. And to Elijah, God spoke. He fed him. He brought Elijah to a cave. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. He encouraged Elijah. And then he told Elijah to get to work. And one of the duties that Elijah was called to do was this. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And Elijah had to go and anoint the next prophet, Elisha, to be prophet in his stead. God had kings anointed, prophets anointed, as well as priests anointed. In Exodus chapter 40, we find Moses constructing the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he brought Aaron and his sons through ceremonial cleansings, washings with water. He clothed them with beautiful robes and then poured oil on Aaron and his sons. That was the outward ceremony. And that's important to understand. 
But the outward ceremony is one thing. And the spiritual meaning is another. The outward ceremony pointed to the more important spiritual reality and meaning of that outward ceremony. And the meaning is that the one anointed with oil was chosen by God to occupy an office. And secondly, equipped or qualified by that same God to do the work of that office. So children, when when you see that oil, or you think about that oil coming on David's head, on Elisha's head, on Aaron's head, and that oil is poured out, that was a symbol with God saying, I choose you to be the next king, or the next prophet, or the priest. But I don't only choose you, I qualify you. I equip you with my Holy Spirit, symbolized by that oil, to do the work of that office. Jesus is called the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. The One chosen and equipped for His office. There's no record in the history of Jesus' life of an earthly or or an, an outward ceremony of the pouring of oil on Jesus' head. There's no record of someone actually doing that to Jesus. He didn't receive the outward ceremony, but He received a more important spiritual reality. He was the Anointed One. He didn't need the outward ceremony. He had been chosen from all eternity to be the office bearer. The office bearer of office bearers. The Messiah. The prophet, priest, and king. And he had been equipped by the Spirit. Immediately in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that Spirit came upon him like oil to equip him, to qualify him for the work that he had come to do. Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary and Joseph, is the Christ, the Messiah. Now we ask, what what is the name of His office? There are different names that the Bible gives us. There's the word Savior, Lord's Day 11. There's the word Mediator, Lord's Day 6. The Lord's Day 12 gives the title Christ as the name of the office or this. The prophet, priest, king office. It's one office, but threefold. The prophet, priest, king office. His office is so great an office. His work is so great a work that it took three different kinds of people in the Old Testament, prophet, priests, and kings, to typify, to picture him adequately. So great is his office and so great is his work that when he came to perform his work, His work was greater and His office was greater than all the prophets, priests, and kings put together in the Old Testament. He is the Anointed One. And you ask, what's the application then? And I say, believe in this Messiah. Believe in this Anointed One, this Christ. And bow before Him and worship for how great He is. 
He is the great prophet. That's one aspect of his office. The catechism begins with that office of Christ. He is ordained of God the Father, and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher. And then notice the description of that office and work. Who hath fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And that word revealed is the key word in describing the office or the work of the prophet. Jesus Christ. When you think of that word revealed, you should think of two other words that go along with it. Two movements really in the, in, in the work of a prophet. He first receives revelation and then relates that revelation. A prophet doesn't just bring the revelation, he first receives it and then brings it forth. To illustrate, think of a mirror. A mirror receives light and then reflects that light out. Think of a cup or, or a pot on the stove. He first, that cup or that pot receives the liquid and then overflows or even bubbles forth, as the name prophet means literally, a bubbling forth. Think of a person who receives revelation from God through his ears. And then afterwards, speaks of that revelation to others. Jesus is that Christ, the great prophet, who receives and relates the revelation of God. There are many verses that point to this, this prophetic work of Christ. One is John 15, 15. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. And an explanation of how or why Christ calls His disciples friends, He says, For all things that I have heard of My Father, I have made known unto you. This is the great friendship of Jesus Christ. He came as the great friend to hear all that God the Father had revealed unto Him and then relate it to us as precious secrets. To his people. Notice that word secret in the catechism. To reveal what? The secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. That's a precious word, secret. Don't skip over it. It's secret because it's hidden, it's not shown to everyone. There are mysteries of God's counsel and His work of salvation that He actually hides from the wise and prudent, but reveals them unto babes and sucklings, simple folk like us. But He comes as a friend, as the husband, really, of His bride, the church, And in a still small voice, as he spoke to Elijah, so he speaks to us his secrets, his precious secrets, meaningful secrets. Psalm 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Secrets of truth and grace, which together shine in his most holy word, divine, powerful, irresistible, irresistible. 
and is speaking of those secrets to turn our hearts from unbelief to faith. That's the work of the prophet. One translation issue in the catechism he has fully revealed should be in the present tense. A continuing action is fully revealing. Which makes this point. That Christ during His ministry was a prophet. He did reveal God to His people then as recorded in the Scriptures. But He didn't stop then when He was done, when He died. But He continues to reveal Himself to us not with new revelations that charismatics of today say or claim. But taking the Word, He brings His Word forth in the preaching of the Gospel so that we hear this prophet speak to us even today. He is Christ, the prophet. He brings that Word as a prophet, receiving and relating Special revelations, secrets to us. And secondly, He is the priest. The great high priest. We can summarize that work as sacrificing and supplicating. Sacrificing and supplicating. The Catechism puts it this way, to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of His body has redeemed us and makes continually, continual intercession with the Father for us. He sacrifices. He has sacrificed Himself already. Aaron and those priests of the Old Testament sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed bulls and goats and doves and all kinds of animals so that Jerusalem was covered in blood on Passover. But not one animal and not one drop of blood could actually cover sin. All of that is pointing to the one high priest, Jesus Christ, to come. Far greater than every high priest, because His work would be effective. And far greater also in this sense. That as the great high priest, He didn't sacrifice something other than Himself. He didn't sacrifice a bull or a goat or a lamb, an animal. But he was both the priest and the sacrifice. He voluntarily took of himself and gave up his life. He laid it down on the altar of the cross to be broken like the bread we saw this morning, to be poured out like the wine this morning. And what no animal could do, what no Old Testament high priest could do. This one sacrifice did enough to cover the sins, every single one, the sins of all of His elect people so that it is true. It is finished. Payment has been fully made for our salvation. There's no more suffering, no more sacrifice required of us for the payment of sin, for our salvation. No more good work required of us to pay God for our salvation. He has done it with His sacrifice. But just as that prophetic work is not only of the past, His priestly work is also not only of the past. 
His priestly work continues. Not, not as the Roman Catholics say, that His priestly work has to continue in a sacrifice again and again every Lord's Supper. But as the priest, He supplicates or He intercedes. He prays for us. As that risen and ascended Christ, He pleads on the basis of His one sacrifice and prays for our forgiveness. Is an understanding high priest who understands our feelings and our infirmities better than we understand them ourselves. He makes continual intercession for us in heaven. Perfectly He does that. So that Father hears us. Forgives us. And cares for us day by day. Christ was anointed as the prophet who receives and relates revelation. He was anointed as the priest who sacrificed himself and now supplicates for us. And thirdly, he was anointed as king. The kingly work can be summarized as guarding and governing. Guarding and governing. That's our great Messiah. Guarding is fighting It includes fighting. The fighting is often a defensive battle. That's what guarding is. Fighting a defensive battle to protect His people. That's what the catechism emphasizes. But He has already fought first an offensive battle. Just like David, He came as a conquering king. While He looked to all the world as though He was being defeated as He suffered through His life, and then hung on that cross with that superscription above his head. King of the Jews. He was in that way of suffering. Conquering. As the king does conquer. Crushing Satan's head. Defeating the guilt of sin. Enduring the punishment due unto us. To remove all the guilt and to give us victory over death. And on Resurrection Sunday, He proved that He indeed was the conquering King. But His work was not done after He had conquered as the King on the cross. And after He rose again, He enters into our hearts. He goes to the throne room of our souls where that old man sits, reigning to start. As a conquering king, he overthrows that old man. And he puts in place a new heart, a new man. That's his great work as Messiah, by his spirit. And then he defends, the catechism says, and he preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation. Protects us against all the assaults of the devil. And when we fall, because we do, into sin, to all kinds of errors of our behavior, of our doctrine even, He turns us in true repentance. He makes sure of it. He preserves us all the way unto glory. Beloved, He has governed us, or He has guarded us. He has protected us as the King. 
as many slanderous words that may be flung at you to leave the impression and leave you sometimes wondering if you could lose your salvation. No. The King, the one anointed to be King, has guarded us and protected us. He is the defender of our soul. He will not allow us to be lost. He guards and He governs, sovereignly governing everything. The thieves in Myanmar. He governs the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. He governs the unidentified objects that fly from China. He governs the very hearts of those who conspire. He governs those who try to control and manipulate their wives, the families, and even the church. Playing on emotions. Playing God. Christ governs. He sits on the throne in heaven. And He has them in derision who think that they are outside of His control. He governs all things for us and never against us. He governs to work by His Word and Spirit in us so that we might have peace as we wait upon Him. And He governs us in such a way that we do, we do, we do live according to His commandments as Christians. Part of the Gospel is that Christ is such a great Messiah. Such a great office bearer. With such a great work that His anointing becomes ours. Not so that we become Christ. It's blasphemy to say that about yourself. But He does make you Christian of Christ. Why art thou called a Christian, the catechism asks? Because I am a member of Christ. How? By faith. And thus I'm a partaker of His anointing. The picture is familiar. The branch united to the vine. We being the branches dead of ourselves united to the living vine, Jesus Christ. He joins us or grafts us by the bond of faith. Every elect person Christ does this to. He binds you to Himself by the bond of faith. The living bond. So there flows unto us from Christ all the blessings of salvation. A related illustration which the catechism takes up is that of the body with different body parts. Now not branches, but different body parts like the hand, like the foot, like the ear, like the eye. All the different body parts are joined to the head, which is Christ, to make up the body we're joined by what? By, by the bond of faith. So that from Christ the head, there flows into all of us His life. But the picture is that of anointing. Think of that bottle of oil that came upon David. When that oil of children came upon the head of David, it didn't stay on the head only. That oil flowed downward. A lot of oil. 
to cover the shoulders, the arms, the face, and all the body parts of David as a picture of that which happens to each of God's people in Christ, bound to Him by faith, chosen from eternity like Him and in Him, and equipped by His Spirit, which is like oil that flows to us. Are you a Christian? Are you joined to Christ? Then live it as prophets, priests, and kings. Many claim to be Christians today, but are not living as prophets, priests, and kings. No, it will not be perfect, as we read in the Catechism. We'll daily strive with our sin. But you will live as prophets, priests, and kings. Having partaken of the Lord's Supper, strengthened by Christ Himself, you will live like Him. You will. As a prophet. Remember the prophet? Don't jump to speaking. A prophet first receives revelation and then relates it. Listen, listen, listen. Not with a critical spirit, but listen first like the Bereans of Acts 17 who receive the Word with all readiness of mind and search the Scriptures daily whether those things were true. Listen to the preaching carefully. Listen to what God says in His Word. Read the Scriptures. Receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. You are able, you are equipped by the Spirit to understand, to listen. And then listening, having listened, continuing to listen as a prophet. Bubble forth, speak, show forth the praises of Him who has redeemed you. Speak that which you have heard, echo it forth. Make confession of faith, young people. And don't let confession of faith be the first time that you speak of what you believe. But to one another in the church, to fellow believers first, speak of that which He has done for your soul. From parents to children, from children to parents, from young people to young people, have spiritual discussions with each other, not to complain and backbite in bitterness. Put that aside. But to have real, living, joyful discussions about that which God has revealed to us. Let Christians be prophets who witness to one another and then to others outside of the church also. Are you a Christian? Then you will be a prophet. Are you a Christian? Then you will be a priest. The Catechism puts it this way, present myself a living sacrifice of thanks to Him, quoting from Romans 12. Remember the prophet, he sacrifices and supplicates. 
Christians, of course, do not try to be an atoning sacrifice. But like the Old Testament, they seek to bring forth sacrifices of thankfulness, thank offerings, living sacrifices. Not first of all willing to die, though that might be one day your privilege, but a life of sacrifice of your soul and body to His service. Young people, beloved people of God in Christ, in this age of materialism, where few are willing to deny themselves the pleasures of this life, are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him? Are you willing to sacrifice of your career that is in pursuit of money? Give that up. And you're willing to give in service of God, perhaps by teaching or preaching that God has given you those gifts. In this age of entitlement, young people, you feel like you deserve everything to be served, to be served, to be served. Are you a priest that is willing to sacrifice of your time, of your energy, to visit the fatherless, the widow, the elderly. Give of yourself in the service in the church, not to entertainment of this world. In this age of addiction, of addiction, where it seems the world is addicted to everything, to alcohol, to pornography, to digital devices, Are you a priest that is willing to sacrifice in your comfortable life to cut it out and to get the help you need to do so? Sacrificing is not, it's not easy. Think of Christ's sacrifice. It, it can be painful. But Christians a priests who sacrifice. But while they are sacrificing, they're supplicating. Because they know, Christians know, I can't sacrifice by my own strength. And so they're before God in prayer, in prayer, in prayer, supplicating, seeking God's help on their knees to help in the disciplined life of serving God and not mammon. Are you a Christian? And you will be a king. The catechism puts it this way, that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin. And Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. You see that phrase, with a good conscience? With a good conscience indicates to you and me what a king fights against and guards against first. His own sinful nature. 
The sinful nature seeks to wound our conscience. The temptations unto sin after sin after sin. To numb our conscience. To remain impenitent after we sin. Fight it. Fight it. Turn from sin to Christ. Clear your conscience at the cross. And with a free and good conscience, do not stop fighting. Christians fight. They don't fight against each other. They fight alongside each other against the common enemy of their sinful natures, Satan, and the world. They fight as a unit, united, to guard, to protect the lambs of the church, to protect fellow soldiers loyal to one another, wrestling against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against powers in this world. They govern. The king guards and governs. And the Catechism, finally, notice, focuses on the reigning or governing over all things in the future, what will happen. The Christians also learn how to govern today. Men, I speak to you, especially you men. Men of the church, a Christian man governs, a Christian man governs his house. He knows what's going on. He helps his family fight. He guards the home from the temptations all around and that come through the media of today. He puts an end to it. He's a spiritual leader around the dinner table regularly, not neglecting the spiritual life of his family because he is anointed with the anointing of King Jesus. He rules his household well. The lack of male leadership destroys families and churches. Take heed, men. You are to guard and govern your home. Are you a Christian? It won't be perfect. Far from it. The Spirit of Christ comes upon each of His people to empower us to be prophets, priests, and kings. This is not man-centered preaching, as some may accuse it to be. This is Christ-centered preaching. Because it flows from Christ. If you are a Christian, will live as He frees you to live. It is not, not true, that because you are so great a Christian, that Christ saves you. No, that's the false gospel. But it is true, that because you have so great a Christ, that you will live as a Christian. He makes His anointing yours. Now may, so, may Christ so work in you 
You claim Him to be so great a Savior. May He so work in you to be, to live as a Christian. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, merciful Father, we praise Thee for Christ, the Anointed One, chosen and qualified to do that saving work for us and in us, so great is He. We thank Thee for His work as prophet, priest, and king. So much of a, so great of a work that one sermon cannot comprehensively describe it. Yet so great a work that it thrills us. And Thou dost use that word to work in us. We truly desire out of thankfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit to live Christ-like lives. Will God cause us more and more to turn neither to the left nor to the right, but as Christians to walk along that path of life, crucifying the flesh, daily taking refuge in the perfect work of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Cause us, O God, to glorify the name of Christ as Christians. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.